0: Welcome to The Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host, Ali Houston, as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with The Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks and enjoy the show.
1: And we are recording and I'm lucky enough to have with me George Henderson who is an independent researcher who's published research papers out of the Auckland University of Technology, often alongside one of our previous guests, Professor Grant Schofield. Uh, George also has a tremendous blog called Hopeful Geranium, which documents his research on human physiology, stemming from his impressively self-researched diet-induced recovery from hepatitis C, which is, of course, a virus. So uh, welcome and thanks for coming on. Ah, thank you, Ellie. Great to be here. So can you talk us through your understanding and thoughts on coronavirus since the first time you heard about it in China until now? Um,
2: yeah, um, and straight up I want to say is I'm not a clinician. I have not had experience dealing with this virus. I have just been reading... Um, you know, I had plenty of time to read the things that people have been sharing, including things that are being shared from the front lines. But I don't have any particular kind of, um, I guess, pet theory about what the virus is doing. I'm just trying to see it in the in the general in the general world of of viruses that we've dealt with through history and and you know the previous contenders. And so we have these uh, you know, a long line of viruses. I suppose, coming out of animals, because that's the place where, you know, the, the only place, um, or the most likely place that they, they change their form and become some kind of novel pathogen to us. And we go back to the Spanish flu of 1918, um, and you, more recently, 1968, you have the Hong Kong flu. This um, was the new flu virus that killed about a million people worldwide, um, 100,000 people in the United States. I had this. I think in about 1969, in Invercargill, New Zealand, my whole family had it. It was really horrible. It was like, you're kind of like caked and snot and you ache for like a couple of weeks and you can't do anything much. Um, and um, and the, the SARS and MERS viruses, these were coronaviruses, um, and SARS coronavirus arose in Hubei province and... Um, probably came from a civet, a palm palm civet, that had acquired a mutant form of the virus. Um, Believed to be, or there's a theory, that low selenium levels in Hubei make it a particularly um, good sort of place for new viruses to arise because the rate of viral mutation will be higher if there isn't enough selenium to kind of protect the viral genome. And also this sort of harvesting of selenium by the virus, which which a lot of RNA viruses use a lot of selenium. And in parts of the world where people are very low in selenium or where people's diets are very low in selenium can potentially be more harmful to them. The virus can mutate and be more harmful to other people after that. Um, and I don't think they're seeing, so far they haven't detected COVID um, mutating in in the human population, but it's believed to arise in animal populations under these conditions. So we have the the SARS coronavirus um, um, probably arising in that way in Hubei. The the MERS coronavirus, which um, I think sort of died off quite early. I think that one was controlled pretty well. Um, And you have um, more recently the swine flu, which is another flu um, mutation coming up and that was about 2009 and um and so we have another one of these but it is presenting with something that's like the acute respiratory distress syndrome of sars but seems to be different so people are saying it's different it's it's affecting the um the immune system and lungs differently from how sars used to so treating it as sars isn't you know completely perfect all the time and um so yeah, that's where we're at. It seems to be pretty highly contagious and it seems to um, have, I think, a, a relatively high case fatality rate, perhaps because of its unpredictability. And this might go down as clinicians get a handle on it and kind of understand that its own nature, the particular nature of the condition, um, are, you know, experience could lower the case fatality rate even before there's a cure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That's something that is really being scrambled for at the moment is proper data on the case fatality rate and really the, the denominator of, um, of that equation. Um, yeah. So you've looked into the immune response to new viruses. What can you tell about C19 and how we're responding to it?
2: Um, well, there was a, a case study a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, of um, somebody who had mild course of um, of COVID-19, and it was a kind of a complete immune, following the immune system through the course of the virus, and they found um, a kind of a normal, broad-spectrum response across innate immunity and acquired immunity that led to the acquisition of antibodies And presumably you know the mild course of infection. so there you have sort of the healthy young person's immune system that responds to it and you pathogen it in fairly quickly um, is aware that there is one. I think that's an important kind of point of the immune response because that can be missed um, among all the signals going on and um, sorting out which um, B cells, which antibody producing cells, you know identifying the right one, to replicate and and make the best matching antibodies. This is called um, immunodominance in, and it's kind of, a, you know, the point of the vaccine or something is to not only, not only um, give the body a dose of a vaccine, a dose of the thing, the anti- antigen, the thing you need to make the antibodies too, but also to put it in a state of alertness so it knows to do the sorting process. So it knows to kind of reach for, that it's important to find an antibody for this one because you get a lot of antigens in your body all the time you know if you think about all the allergens you're exposed to if you think about um you know drugs your body's your body makes antibodies to drugs anything that shouldn't be there you, know, you get a splinter in your finger, your body will you make antibodies to it. So, there's a lot of kind of noise in this system. And when you have a new infection, you need to recognize it as a new infection. You need this kind of like this one's important signal going on to sort through all the antibodies and, and come up with a quick answer. And this is why, um, you know, this, this sort of drops off with of age, for example, and it you know, drops off in, in various forms of ill health, the ability to do this. And so, you have. Um, and so I'll cut a long story short, and I'll get to the end here. You find that when you give flu vaccines to elderly, and people in America, I think, uh, you know, sort of qualify for a flu vaccine at 65, and it's sort of roughly cut off like this when we're saying elderly. You give a flu vaccine to elderly people, and um, perhaps only 20 to 30% of them are, are um, uh, immune to that flu strain after the vaccine it's not very good for giving herd immunity in that population where you probably want at least two thirds of them to be immune. And, and, um, so to cut a long story short, I found this out when I was looking at probiotic research, because there's been quite a bit of research into probiotic probiotics and their effect on immune responses. And when you give old elderly people probiotics and you give them, um, the flu vaccine, they are twice as likely, or sometimes three times as likely to have, you know, if they're healthy elderly people and you eliminate a few other categories, sometimes three times as likely to have um, the immune response that you want and what you call seroprotection, meaning that if they get the flu, they'll be protected against it. You know, if they're exposed to it, they'll be protected. And um, of course, when I read this, I was like, well, this is astounding, you know, two or three-fold increase. This is a, a massive increase, this is great. So then I went and thought, well, how can you get a three-fold increase unless you've got a really low immunity rate to start with? That's implying the baseline is quite low. So I went and dug in the individual papers to kind of find what the the raw the raw rate of seroconversion and seroprotection, which are different ways of looking at antibody levels after a flu vaccine are, and I found they were shockingly low, like 20%, you know, like 20-something percent is a pretty common um a pretty common results, and I thought, well, no wonder that um, there's so much debate about whether flu vaccines actually work. Because um, yeah, <laughs> but, but that shows that the um, that the immune response sort of declines with age, and it sh- but it also shows it's dependent on a factor that can be restored,
1: which is um, signalling from the gut in this case. Yeah, that's the microbiome and immunity. Absolutely fascinates me. I am. Um, just as an anecdote had what I think may have well have been COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had several of the hallmark symptoms um, and including some uh, gut upset and what happened in the in the week or 10 days afterwards was that um, I experienced continued kind of gut problems like uh, after I ate anything, I would bloat out and that's I can't remember that ever happening to me um, and that would happen after every meal for several days and um, there was continued gut problems. Uh, it seemed very unusual, I hadn't changed how I, how I ate um, but I also put on weight uh, rapidly and um, had a sort of really bad migraine which is something I used to get a lot. Just these things which point to potentially you know the gut and I wonder why you think probiotics seem to make a difference in the area that you were looking at and um, how the gut's really involved here.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously this is really complicated and um, there's probably more than one pathway going on. Um, the main one is that the the probiotics... Um, species they kind of mimic an infection so they're, they're um i guess long-standing um symbiotic you know relationship where we've tolerated something that perhaps used to be a pathogen so perhaps we still recognize it as a pathogen. the signals there that are giving that um level of alertness and that that you want when you're exposed to an, a new bacteria. It's what it's what's called a, a ju- I mean a new a new pathogen. It's what's called a adjuvant effect. When you're designing a vaccine, you don't just put in the antigens. You have to put in things that will stimulate the immune system. That's usually aluminium, um, but it's usually actually a mixture of different things, including aluminium. And um, you could make adjuvants out of you know say probiotic extracts and so forth it would be a, f- a fancy and expensive way of doing it but i'm, I'm sure there's lots of sort of um, more natural things that you could um make a juvenile out of if you had the if you could be bothered um and um so there's, there's that there's that kind of alert signal coming through um but also okay. perhaps there's it changes in the microbiome itself so you take the probiotic and some effect of that particular organism is to suppress some you know some less desirable organism or something like that and um, this is probably also a pathway for some herbal medicines that sort of boost immunity in the same way is on the one hand they're mimicking the infection so to make you more alert but on the other hand they're probably also changing the microbiome in other ways and, and there's a, there's a theory that viruses um, cycle through intestinal bacteria the intestinal bacteria play a role in the way that um, viruses uh you know presented to the immune system for a start and perhaps that they are exploiting some bacteria um as an infection route as well and i think an important consideration here is that the gut is a kind of a mucosal domain they're, they're mucosal cells and it's the same as the throat and nose and throat and lungs and that that it's kind of this this kind of a wet outside of the body kind of inside outside of the body if you think about you know the the evolution of organisms, so that they, they have an inside. The inside is kind of like the outside, internalised, and, and um, it, it needs this, um, this kind of dampness and this kind of um, uh, food for microbes to be producing that, which is what mucus is, and so something that stimulates one part of this mucosal domain can have an effect on another, seemingly unrelated one. Like the um, well, of course, the gut is connected to our breathing apparatus through the throat, so there is a you know, there, there is a connection there.
1: Um, and I guess, yeah, the, uh, I guess the gut in and of itself is several uh chambers and uh different systems that sometimes shouldn't interact but often do when things go wrong,
2: and
1: um, yeah, like appendicitis is a, a, visage, a sort of classic example of that, yeah, yeah. And you've fired shots at a certain subsection of the scientific community, uh, understandably, I think, for dismissing um, certain, uh, I don't know, measures in various uh, diseases, but particularly thinking about supplements and herbs in in relation to uh, COVID-19. So what are your thoughts on this subject? Yeah, yes, I think you can be too
2: dismissive of something um just because the evidence on it isn't perfect but you know it, it's still if you if you go in and look at the um science around something like say echinacea um there's you find heaps of really well-designed experiments in animals that are um you know you can you can certainly you can certainly um you know question their relevance to human experiments but then when you see a human experiment and it has you know a certain result you can go well actually you know there's hundreds of papers in animals or there's a lot of research in animals that we can look to see if that's plausible you know it's not just someone just making up some idea and 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 kind of you know cherry picking a few references and putting out a review paper or something there's there's been people testing this stuff for years there's been people testing it for years and they've designed you know the most rigorous experiments they can to test the effects that they want to test and so on so there there is there are bodies of science there and um and then it's also a question, of of course, in a crisis, you have to ask, well, what else do you have? Do you have anything? You have a, what, a vaccine in 2021? Oh, great. Oh, well, let's just ignore everything else until then, you know, it's, it's, that's just, that's not sustainable. But on the other hand, you have the question of, well, this is a novel situation and, and anything that looks good in another situation may not look good in this situation. So you really have to kind of... Um, you know, ob- obviously be careful. But I, I would think at, at, at the present point of time, there are a, a heck of a lot of people out there who are going to be taking elderberry when they, you know, get a sniffle and think it might be COVID. There are people who are going to be taking lots of vitamin C when they get a sniffle and think it might be COVID. Um, it would be certainly be good to pay attention to what's happening to these people. I'm not hearing any scare stories about them yet anyway. Um, and... You know, I, I, I approached this um, line of research from the point of view that when I had the swine flu, I'd read a bit of research about elderberry and it had impressed me. And so when I got the swine flu, I went and got some sambucus and I took it right away as soon as I started to feel ill. And I gave it to my son who had also started to feel ill. Now, my daughter and my partner had had the swine flu for a couple of days before us. And I hadn't been at home, and I hadn't got the elderberry to them within 48 hours, and my son and I were able to take it within 24 hours. Now we were sick but healthy. We were able to go and help the other two. We were able to kind of carry, you know, carry things for the, for the next week while they were still staying extremely ill. Um, but, you know, there was a clear contrast between the two people who got elderberry early, and the two people who didn't. Now I do think that algebra is possibly more specific for flu and for you know other types of viruses. Um, certainly the best evidence for it is in flu. Um, but then you know flu was the most serious virus until recently, pretty much. And um, and so that made me think, well, you know, I kind of know in myself that it works, but can I prove it? Can I kind of find evidence? And yeah, there are there are trials, but they only add up to like 118 people, I think. Um, good results you know like a a a, um you know basically a halving of, of the flu infection rate um which is consistent with the probiotic hypothesis because you're if you take something like that in the in the first phase of an infection you're raising your cytokine levels through i'm not really sure what the pathway of the algebra is but you get this rise of interferon um interferon um natural killer cells and in cytokines in general, that's just making the response more, more kind of rapid, more kind of aware, and you're more likely to go into that seroconversion and, and, and get the antibodies out of that. Um, <clears throat> but as I looked at that, and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, this backs up what I think, but it's slim, there's only 118 people, there's only four trials and so forth. Um, I keep noticing things that would pop up in the sidebar, and so one of those is um, uh, BCG vaccine. So the um, the old TD vaccine is um, countries where that's been used have lower uh, seem to have lower mortality rates from COVID. Um, and they're doing a trial where they're going to give it to some healthcare workers
1: and see if it you know prevents them getting getting sick. So Yeah, two notable countries who haven't had the BCG is Italy and the United States, right? Yes. Yes. And um,
2: and I think countries like Germany, where you've got the low mortality rate, have had it, and so, so You have that, you know, you've got that between-country correlation. Of course, when you compare countries, as Ansel Keys will tell you, there's a lot of other stuff going on. So it's just sort of the beginning of a the beginning of the trail of evidence. But um, uh, but then I, I see the BCG, and I see well, probiotics are turning up. And so I went and looked at the probiotic evidence and that's more compelling because you've got, um, I mean, not that the herbal evidence isn't compelling, but the bulk, you know, you know, the size of the probiotic evidence is greatest. So you've got more than a thousand people in trials with a um, pretty much have rate of upper respiratory tract infections and people taking probiotics. But you've also got a fairly sizable body of evidence about giving probiotics before vaccines. As I mentioned earlier with the flu vaccine, that shows these double seroconversion rates in in healthy elderly. So you don't see an improvement in younger people, healthy adults, because they've got overall pretty good seroconversion rates anyway. And you but you do have these improvements in the healthy elderly and then you don't see them in the sort of hospitalized elderly. Again, because you know perhaps they're, they're too far gone for the probiotics to to help that much. But definitely in the group a very important group i think of you know healthy elderly people who want to stay healthy because they're not going to stay healthy if they get the flu and they don't have the seroconversion um in in that group you have um um the big differences so you have this sort of you have this um, more rigorous testing which is testing the effect of a vaccine where you've got a lab you know it's not self-reported did you get a sinful or not it's like um it's it's what are your antibody levels what are you, you know? Have you got antibodies to the thing we've tried to give you? Antibodies to? So it's a very it's a very rigorous test. You're getting you're getting lab results, and I always trust you know lab markers way over anything that's you know self-reported. And um, you've um <coughs> and you're seeing these effects, which are consistent in both direction and size with the effects from the RCTs. So I think. Um, you can have confidence in that effect. And by extension, you can have confidence in anything that's going down the same path, like the BCG or the herbal extracts that have been tested in this context. Um, By analogy, they all kind of fit together. It's all this thing of of immune immune alertness and kind of waking up an immune system that's been, um, you know, perhaps to some extent, doped by modern lifestyle and modern diet, because there are things that will kill off the the good bacteria that you' you know the, the type of bacteria that you might give someone in one of these probiotics can be um, killed off by diet high in in linoleic acid by a diet high in unsaturated fats because um, uh, probiotic bacteria do not really like unsaturated fats and you know this should be obvious to anyone that's made yogurt there's only two things you can make yogurt with one is dairy and the other is coconut and dairy is the most saturated animal fat in nature, and coconuts are the most saturated plant fat. So you know, um, bacteria are trying to tell us something there. You know, they, they 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 don't like this highly um highly unsaturated oil mix, and also they don't like they don't like carbohydrate that's had all the fibre stripped from it. Obviously, you know, this is a so if you've got you know your flour and sugar, your flour and sugar and oil is um, not going to promote the type of biome that is you know associated with with the kind of good immune response and you know if we go back to the um the probiotic vaccine research you are getting seroconversion in like a third of the people you know you, you even without the probiotics it's about a third of the people who've got you know um still got whatever whatever it takes and um so Presumably, if you looked at that in some kind of nutritional epidemiology way, you'd find those people had more fibre, more dairy, less processed food, and perhaps were just eating better anyway, Because you know, nutrition overall is an important part of this too. And if you're you know depleted in you know zinc, selenium, and, um, vitamin A, and so forth, you
1: know you may not be able to raise the proper immune response as that easily. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And I think there's the the um the area of uh, the scientific community that you uh, were, were targeting probably guilty sometimes of uh, minimising the positive effects that nutrition can have on um, the kind of defences that our bodies need to uh, fend off, you know, basic um, attacks and chronic illness.
2: Yeah, I mean, as I say, this has been studied. Um, there are people, you know, devoting their lives to researching, say, the effect of malnutrition on a vaccine response, or the effect of one or another supplement on a vaccine response. And, and you know, one of the other things that looks good, and this is quite curious, is vitamin E. So high-dose vitamin E supplements around vaccines. And I don't pretend to understand how that works, but that's that's an interesting one either. But you get people poo-pooing with stuff because, you know, someone like Dr. Oz says it, so, you know, he's a, a class enemy. You know, he has to be attacked regardless of whether he's right or wrong. And you get people sort of approving this stuff, and then it becomes obvious they haven't read this research. They don't know that people have actually researched this. This is a field, you know, you know it's a field in immunology. It's a field in vaccine research. It's in the journals. Um, it's in the journals. People have devoted their lives to studying this stuff. And here's people who are, are just automatically assuming that it's witchcraft. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of that goes on,
1: unfortunately. Yeah, it's disappointing. I think uh, the, the sort of the lack of time that we have and uh, headspace uh, ends up um, us needing shorthands, and uh, you know, we uh, we jump to conclusions. Um, the 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 area of supplements is something that really interests me. I mean, um, I think to summarize what, what I think is going on there is you have. Um, you know, supplementation available in various forms and strengths and qualities, and they are the same molecules a lot of the time as our bodies need and use. And
2: and, and if they're slightly different, then they often have different effects that tell us something about
1: yes, about and that they too. You know, but I mean, if we've got these isolated molecules which are at least very similar if not identical to the ones that our bodies need it stands to reason that if we can ingest them meaningfully that they would have a meaningful effect now you get so much um sort of knee jerk um, uh, kind of um, rejection of the idea that they could help But i think partly because it's an unregulated market where you end up with um charlatans or well-meaning people who don't understand what they're selling, selling these things to people at the wrong dose in the wrong form of the wrong quality. And then of course you're going to see uh, reduced benefits or no benefits or harm um, if they're not applied properly and in the right dosage in the right form. But that doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. It means we should redouble our efforts to work out which ones work best and when
2: yeah i mean that's right i mean if you look at the history of drug research you know you have some you know they used to give um before they invented you know paracetamol which is i don't think is a great drug but there used to be an analog of paracetamol was it acetaline and it used to kill people and you know it's the same drug we use today just needed a little modification but it went on for like decades you know so of it actually you know killing people and being promoted by people who had no real idea what it did and you know you saw the same thing with with heroin, you know being marketed as a non-addictive drug and then that actually history actually repeated itself quite recently with the opioids and 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 yeah, so it's not um you know this this tendency for things to escape from regulation or to be like that outside so of regulation is 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 you know not unique to um not unique to um things that are outside the medical model necessarily but one of the things i i i i I think this issue of um of the issue of standardization is is an important one because for to market a drug you've got to have an isolated molecule pretty much with a few exceptions and um you you may not want to isolate the molecule if you're say say you're looking at um probiotics you know you may want quite a, a broad range of different things to be available. You may not want to just narrow it down to one and say, oh, well, this one, we think this one's the best. We're going to drop all the others, not stop researching those and push this one, find the billion dollars it'll take to bring this one to market, you know, as a drug. Um, you, you may not want to do that. Like, for example, with cannabis, um, that's an effective drug. That certainly is an effective psychotropic drug, but most people who use it wouldn't want it to be standardised. They'd want to keep getting the... the you know, bespoke combination of ingredients that they you know that, that they've found through their lives, and yet that's not a placebo. Cannabis isn't a placebo. You know, it it, it, it has a strong effect, and, and so um, I think there's there's kind of a a time and a place for, for that kind of that kind of approach, um, and and perhaps you know, not everything exists in, in quite that realm. Um but, but I think certainly but still to prove anything, you have to isolate variables you know you have to have enough work that isolates variables so you can back up the claims you're making for
1: um, you know things that are a bit looser perhaps mm-hmm. that makes sense I mean, there's no I don't think there's any miracle supplements that's what I would suggest in that um most people get the most gains from uh, changing their nutrition. And then if, yes. if there's any um, real, uh, if there's any areas where they're, they've are they really fallen far behind, but you hear about people needing, you know, elephant doses of um, of, bit of vitamin B12, for example, or other B vitamins or other uh, vitamins that they might be frankly deficient in to climb out of a kind of metabolic hole that they found themselves in after years and years where they're in a kind of, uh, deep well potential well yeah. and they need to it's not like they, they just can take normal amounts and get themselves out they need to leap out um but that is an area that's so under um, you know understudied and poorly understood that um was why you've got this sea of people self-experimenting
2: yeah i mean the supplement can tell you what direction you need to go in but um i wouldn't like to sustain that direction for a lifetime just by taking a supplement, you know, and um, in in my own case, I really got my start, really got my start in this whole field by taking supplements, because I had hep C, I read the books on hep C, um, and there was suggestion that supplements were beneficial, and there was a bit of research, and um, so I thought, I'll try these, I'll take these supplements, took them and felt much better, and relatively quickly, within a couple of weeks, started to feel like, oh, I've got a handle on this, now I can actually make myself feel good, and took me a couple of years, and I was mostly using supplements before I realised that um, I could achieve most of these aims by changing my diet. um, and then I didn't need the supplements anymore, but it really pointed me in the right direction. It really said, well, you know, oxidative, oxidative stress is an issue for you. Insulin resistance is an issue for you. You know, these kind of things. It, it kind of clearly highlighted these areas that then when I was looking at um, general diet, um, I could recognize. I could recognize that because I'd taken high dose of N-acetylcysteine and it had made me feel you know, freedom from symptoms, that therefore um, a diet that took me in the same direction that that would, for example, would, you know, potentially have the same benefits because um, because um, a whole bunch of stuff that's supposed to improve insulin sensitivity had some benefit for me, but therefore just eating less carbs would have the same
1: benefit, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of similar. To me, you know, I was looking for um, something I could add and Georgia had spoken about this eloquently that there's this real desire in humans to add a magic bullet to what they're doing to solve everything. So whether that's a superfood like goji berries or whether it's a, a, a pill from the doctor, the idea of removing things is much harder to get your head around at first. Yeah. Um, and so we've sort of covered it talking about um, your your history there with Pepsi, but what might be the elephant in the room for COVID is this potential metabolic risk factor, um, which is definitely correlated with viral disease, death um, in other respects. So what do you think the situation is with COVID-19 and things like diabetes and so on? And what do you think we should be doing going going ahead? Well, I, I,
2: I think the risk is so kind of obviously stacked against people with metabolic disease that reversing those symptoms of metabolic disease, which we know we can do um, in most cases um, fairly rapidly, is something that that has to be protective um how protective you know we'll find out but um if you get people out of those categories if you get their blood glucose down if you um especially you know get their breathing because apnea is one of the is one of the kind of early targets of say a low carb intervention or you know fasting or one of these interventions is, is you know improvement in breathing is kind of by the um you know respiratory quotient and by um reduction of fat on the tongue and reduction of, you know, um, uh, perhaps you know, uh, factors that are constricting the airways and um, as well as the immune tone, all sorts of things that, that um, uh, you would predict would be beneficial, um, you know, just getting people out of those categories where they're they're at most risk of illness and taking them off drugs that might be um, dangerous in this context, because the people who are going to do best uh, for whatever reason are the people who become infected and who are not dependent on multiple medications. um, Because there's a whole lot of other factors that the doctor has to worry about. Do I increase this, decrease that? You know, there's all sorts of things that they, you you know, your doctor's not going to have to worry about if you're not already medicated. And um, uh, and you can do this, you know, with with diet and and supplements to to a great extent. And one of the things I'm thinking about here is that it does not look good to be taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or be taking paracetamol because these are things that reduce the response to vaccines. So as well as there being a list of things that will enhance the response to vaccines as adjuvants, there are also things that will decrease the response to vaccines. And paracetamol is definitely one of those. So you have lower antibody levels and you'll have lower, if you need to take these things, um, you, you, you're potentially at higher risk, and um, also not good in animal models of pneumonia. In a way, these drugs aren't good. So um, you, you, um, if you can, you know, manage pain, manage headache, or whatever, in some other way, I think you've, you know, you've, you're dodging a little, a small bullet there. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And then, obviously. The, the usual advice about uh, removing sugar, veg oil, and um, and and flour, refined flour. Yeah, 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 yes, uh, yes. I think those are those
2: are the basic ones. Anyone who does those things is going to feel better.
1: It's funny, like there's there's an understandable um, kind of voice, uh, collective voice, that's trying to keep the the bandwidth clear about messaging on on what to do around COVID nineteen, and that particular group of people has been kind of vocal about saying, "Stop telling people to cut out custard creams when they're you know isolated for weeks on end. They should be uh, focusing on washing their hands and staying isolated and staying happy." But I don't see why you can't have, um, you know, an added bonus bit of advice which might actually help people thrown in there well well, why not
2: enjoy a steak or something why does it have to be a custard cream you know why why is it but i I mean i am i I understand i don't really because it's sort of so long ago and so far away and this stuff did me so much harm but i kind of understand people's emotional attachment to food especially in a family setting because um you know like sharing food can be an important family um you know, bonding thing, and um, cooking is often something family members are good at, and baking is something people are good at, and people want to be able to contribute with the thing that they're good at. You know, so I, I certainly understand this in, in you know in um, you know the, the kind of the sociological value of it. I just wonder if people can't give these, perhaps people could give this advice about you know the custard cream or whatever, in a context. Where they also told people all the other right things to do, you know, you know okay, so you can enjoy this because you know you haven't eaten shit all day, so you, you know now you can your kid cooks one of these yes you, you can enjoy it, you know perhaps that might be a more a more, a more kind of nuanced way of putting that message there mm-hmm. yeah but to just say but to just say this thing's valuable, and you know don't give it up now is um I don't, I don't think that's helpful. No, no, me neither. So because because you know we may be in our bubbles now, and we are going to come out of them one day, and COVID is still going to be there. I mean, I mean, this is the thing. so if you look at say the probiotic experiments, it took um, several weeks of supplementation to get the best results. It took you know it, it, it's you know like two or three months at least, and. Um, at, and but we actually have that time you know we we, we most people will have that time um, um so certainly in, in my country new zealand we may have beaten it all together may be able to get it down to nothing in a month but um it's um if not it's still around and it's going to be infecting people actually very slowly over the next couple of years so you actually do have time to um be um, in in a better state and if you are seriously metabolically challenged, um, you know the risks are huge for you if you do get it. So, um, um, you yeah, know, it's a it's a very valuable investment for people investing in their health through through diet and exercise. At the moment, it's a very valuable investment for some people, and it certainly shouldn't be discouraged.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree completely. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, I agree that there's going to be this continued risk, you know, there's there's nobody who I've spoken to or read who has been able to rule out the idea that this will just become a, a seasonal thing that it could mutate. And instead of the flu season being the the, the really big worry, it could be that flu plus COVID season becomes yeah. the, the new sort of joint um, uh, risk every you yeah. know, cold season. But I mean, yeah, that- the same thing holds true for COVID as, as flu is that people who have Compromised immune systems, uh, uh, compromised metabolic um, systems, do worse.
2: Yes, yes, and and the numbers of fatalities in these categories are greater than the numbers for people with compromised immune systems at at the moment. And That may be just because the compromised immune diseases are relatively rare, but um, the amount of death that you can chalk up just to the metabolic syndrome and you know and its ramifications is. Is enormous. It's most of the toll that I
1: can see. Yeah, and of course, uh, the the, the bald fact that thirteen point seven approximately million people every year die from coronary vascular disease. So, you know, I hope that the tone of conversation around prevention of uh, unnecessary death looks at the huge figures there as well as the important. Um, specific viral response. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's something that I think fascinates me about this outbreak is um, there's a kind of ghoulish, uh, glued nature to the death toll. You know, and if we looked at the rolling death count from car accidents or coronary vascular disease then we would be equally horrified, and I know the nature of uh, an unknown novel viral pathogen is different because we don't know how to deal with it properly yet, and it's scary because of that. But if you look at the raw numbers, then they should they should scare you just as much for these other diseases. Yeah,
2: yeah, and and yeah, you know, people are highlighting. Well, TB is still killing. Um, you know, TB is a treatable disease that has gone on killing people and is still killing more people than COVID. Or was it the last count? And um, you know, this is treatable. There are drugs for this. There's, you know, nutrition has an effect on it, and so forth. Um, and you know, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's, we think of it as a as a hundred year old disease, something we wiped out. But it's certainly not. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe everything will look a bit different to us after after this, but yeah i mean metabolic disease takes a huge toll diabetes takes a huge toll um normally and um you know um and also a huge toll in kind of shortening you know the you know the fun part of people's lives which um you know i mean it's you know there's life expectancy and then there's health expectancy you know and most people would rather have a you know probably rather have a you know 80 years of being fit and going about and and you know fe- feeling reasonably happy um then you know a period from say 50 to 110 of feeling miserable and sick and in pain you know um and that's really kind of the the difference that the um sugar oil and flour are making to people, all these, the, the kind of the conveniences of stor- storable foods um, that came along at some point and people were like, yeah, we can eat this lower quality food, we don't feel as good, but we're sometimes able to get extra of it that we can store away for a year when there's no food at all, and that keeps us alive, and you know, that's really the tra- trade-off that people have made with these foods, um, going you know, back at the start of the Neolithic revolution. Um, that was really the appeal, because why would people do this? Why would people eat this stuff? you know if you think why would people turn to eating wheat or turn to eating corn and the reason is that you can actually store it for a couple of years, and n- nothing that people ate before that could re- could be stored that long, could be put into a dry form and stored that long and you know that 's going to be a lifesaver
1: for some community at some time over history absolutely, and allows you to. Uh, feed more people and um, plan and uh, trade for you know bigger wealth and uh, raise armies and conquer. And yeah, yeah, and conquer. And build yeah, build cathedrals and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I, I love all that stuff. Um, you know, that's kind of the reason that I call my business Paleo Canteen is really the logic of paleo rather than the dogma of the diet itself, yeah. um, which I think is. It's good logic, you know that we should uh, emulate um, to a reasonable extent the uh, conditions under which our bodies evolved. Yeah, 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 that
2: that's it. you know we 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 evolved within certain parameters. We evolved to deal with certain things quite well. And then there were other things that we didn't have to think about. You know, we didn't have to evolve and we didn't have to think about, you know, large amounts of carbohydrate freed from their fiber and other other, um, sort of conditions. We didn't have to think about concentrated linoleic acid. Um, A few things that were relatively rare in the past have kind of swapped us and lots of things that were common in the past have more or less disappeared, including bacteria as well as other. Other kind of symbionts and pathogens, as well as um, as well as items of food, and so and so here we are, and, and you know, backtracking on this trend produces results. It produces you know quite remarkable results.
1: So, yeah, I, and circling back round to to supplements because it's an area that I'm I've kind of done a bit of experimentation myself, and it's mainly from reading other people's accounts of how they've done those particular. Set of uh, uh, was a forum called Phoenix Rising. I don't know if you've ever been on those ones. Yes, yes, it's um, a chronic fatigue site. Yeah, side. And yeah all- no,
2: that was an early part of my um, reading because it kind of tied in with um, a lot
1: of what I was reading about hepatitis as well. And really, some of the people there are in a desperate state and have been for years and are trying stuff that to. A casual observer like I was just seemed, you know, beyond the pale. Really, maybe even dangerous. And um, but I mean, these are people who have been failed profoundly by their doctors um, because the doctors don't have uh, any understanding or training in what might be done. And in truth, the, neither do the uh, the patients. And they're they're just having a you know. A, Uh, an educated stab in the dark almost Um, and you know I I kind of um, you know tried various things that some felt maybe feel better some made me feel nothing and some maybe you know had deleterious effects that made me stop it but um, I wish there was a better uh, source out there that could say you know within these parameters you know for this that or the other thing you should try this that or the other thing in these doses from this manufacturer, you know, yeah. and I don't know if there is something like that. Do you know if there is? Well, I know, for, um, <clears throat> I know for hep C that by the time
2: I got on to looking at this in about 2003, there was a book called The Hepatitis C Handbook by John Dolan, and that had a summary of supplement research on hep C that I found really useful, and that took me, you know, this was my starting point. So, I think this can be done for something like Hep C. Um, it's a little bit more complicated with chronic fatigue because you have more interplay with genetic um, um, variation. You have more interplay with the MTHR um, allele, you know, variation, um, the one methylation variations is I think a big part of the Phoenix Rising um, protocols and and these you know, very widely between people. So, um, so so that sort of thing complicates things. As soon as people have to consider their own genome, um, things become a lot more complicated. And I
1: prefer I prefer things where you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose diet's one of those that there's not really a genetic um, variant that I can think of that should prevent you from removing uh, veg oils, sugar, and flour from your diet?
2: No, 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 definitely not. There are um, there are certainly genomes that will predict you'll get more benefit from, say, removing um, seed oil. Um, you know, there are things that in- influence the rate at which you produce the acid from linoleic acid and how much it interferes with your omega-3 metabolism and things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah in, in general, um, I think, for one thing, the amount of excess at the moment is so great that um, no one's going to need that much because no one ever had that much before.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, you know, something that I kind of hem and haw about sometimes is wondering whether I'm lucky or not that I'm a bit of a, an autoimmune disaster zone because it means that um, I really shouldn't ever eat things like pizza or bread again. Um, and Or whether I'm better to be someone like... I don't know, Paul Hollywood, who's on the, the Bake Off show over here, who obviously tolerates it up to a point. I mean, he's he's kind of carrying a bit of extra weight, but that could be a few things. But he's obviously not like uh, got alopecia or vitiligo or, you know, his, his esophagus is <laughs> closing or like-minded like, like or, you know, um, doesn't have uh, sarcoidosis, uh, you know, risking his eyesight and all that. So... You know maybe it's a good thing that um, some people have severe uh, reactions and then if they get the knowledge they can fix it young because I think most of the time people get to 50 or 60 and the death by a thousand cuts happens.
2: Yeah yeah I mean this is a really good point and I've thought about this myself too is um, you know would it be better to you know the the kind of person who can eat sugar or can eat bread and seems to be metabolically healthy, you know, is, you know, is metabolically healthy and isn't noticing the kind of things that I notice about these foods. Will it be better to be that person or is it going to catch up with them overall? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have an answer for that. And I, and I think one of the things, because, you know, is our, is our immune response to these foods one of the things that's doing the damage? And you know we we have to cut it out for that reason. Um, on top of the kind of potential metabolic effects, is the immune response magnifying the metabolic effects? All these kind of questions. Um, um, but it's it's interesting if we come back to the, the COVID story for a second here. One of the things that I've always found about viral infections like colds and flu, respiratory infections, is that when I have these, I a far less tolerant of things that I normally have marginal tolerance of. Like dairy is a perfect example. And I know a lot of people think this and a lot of people also claim to have debunked it and so forth. But I'm one of these people, if, if I, I'm a little bit allergic to dairy, it makes me sniffle, but I eat it because, you know, I think it's a valuable food and I like it. But um, if I get a cold, I instantly notice that the dairy is going to make it worse. And it's the same with other things, you know, traces of um, traces of various vegetable proteins that I normally tolerate in my food. I notice them, you know, something like peanut butter that I can eat most days. I, if I have peanut butter when I've got a cold, it's going to make it worse. And this sort of thing, um, it, um, which could be, you know, the, one of these examples of the virus, Interfering with the gut bacteria, you know, it could be that that could, could, could be the pathway for that, or just a different immune state. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I notice is is that when I get a respiratory infection,
1: it tells me to be more strict about the foods, the foods I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've got hope that um, people will come out the other end wanting answers about how they can protect themselves and um, you know, look to really improving their health and you know I'll be there to help them if they want that. What what's your hope from all this? Yes, I um, I mean I, I I
2: especially hope that it kind of puts the focus back on all cause mortality in when when we're doing you know health epidemiology or whatever that um that people remember, well, hey, there is actually another way to die. You know, it's not all about heart disease. It never was all about heart disease. And, you know, lowering rates of heart disease by increasing rates of diabetes and obesity are probably, you know, counterproductive. It's kind of an own goal. And, um, And we need to be looking at interventions that reduce risk across the board. Which, you know, you, there are, you know, I mean, I mean, this can obviously, this is obviously doable that you could reduce the rate that, that one intervention should be able to reduce the rate of um, heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously, because um, these all have strong metabolic risk factors. So, um, you know, the single-minded focus on LDL L as cholesterol is the only worthwhile metabolic risk factor is really what has got us into the state of having kind of, metabolic disease promoting diets being promoted by health agencies, which is basically the situation we're in at the moment. It has really resulted on the single-minded focus on LDL as the only measure that's going to make a difference to your life expectancy, which is you know just ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I can see it already from some of the big players in the food industry, like Arla have recently put out a big Uh, yogurt campaign in the UK uh, about their low sugar yogurt so I think finally the demon because I think the public wants more or less a single demon and I think um, it's finally come round to being sugar.
2: Yeah sugar's a good one I mean it kind of beyond the harm that sugar itself can do it's kind of associates with other things such as um you know know, artificial colors and flavorings or just generally the absence of nutrition and you know all kinds of you know um it it tends to make be used to make bad foods taste better rather than good foods taste better and you know that kind of thing and um and and so it it yeah i think it's probably got more reach than most single single enemy things
1: and then maybe after that who knows it'll come around to veg oil but you know uh, one one day at a time sweet jesus as they say <laughs> yeah
2: um but even veg oil like you definitely see the um you definitely see the difference here so in the in the 1990s um rice bran oil and canola oil became available and you know i know that you know, they may seem satanic to us, but these foods have greatly reduced linoleic acid content, and um, that was a deliberate choice of the food industry to go for foods, promote foods with um, lower linoleic acid content. And you know, it's a classic, um, it's a classic strategy in marketing: is if you want to have a product, find and sell it find something wrong with your competitor's product, find something wrong with the existing product. You know, no one was interested in electric cars until they found something wrong with petrol, which was global warming, you know. So you find something wrong with a competitor's product and you can sell a product that, you know, may even be inferior to it if you, you find enough wrong with it. And this is what happened to butter in the past. And um, But it's been happening to linoleic acid for a while. But uh, and, and so you get peanut butter in New Zealand is overwhelmingly being shifted. Brands are shifting to high oleic peanuts to get linoleic acid content down. So this is this is happening, and and fast food manufacturers are using more palm oil and canola. You know, these palm and canola blends that are, you know, a great deal better than say corn oil or soybean oil would have been. And so, um, and so we see this shift, which sort of no one has admitted they're doing it. No one has openly admitted that they're doing this thing, but the rationale of it is to get the omega six down and. But it's it's seems to be kind of the wrong way about it because um, you can improve omega six omega three ratio in food in, in the body by eating more saturated fat. Is 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 kind of the finding the the novel finding that I've come across more recently. And um, now, for example, aquaculturists are farming fish, the um, sort of target is to have as much omega-3 in the muscle as possible to have a a dha level in the muscle of say the salmon or the trout that's equivalent to what as close as possible as to what it would be in the wild and they've been trying different types of feed for this and of course they would have started off with fish oil and fish meal but that's hardly sustainable feeding fish on fish at the amount feeding fish fish at the amounts that they want so um they've been trying various vegetable based foods and found that the, um, the type of vegetable fat that gives farmed fish the highest DHA content happens to be palm oil, which is actually very low in polyunsaturated fat, has a good omega-3-6 ratio, and is high in saturated fat. And um, the finding is that the saturated fat, you know, sort of protects the omega-3 and gets it out to the body whereas having an oil higher in omega-6 or even higher in oleic acid decreases the amount of omega-3 that gets through and so well this is fascinating but as fish does it relate to humans well what i've found is that um you know we are evolved from fish ultimately and um, this mechanism because it allows mammals to conserve a rare nutrient it allows mammals to make better use of a a rare but very valuable nutrient, which is omega-3 fatty acids, that it seems to have been conserved all the way down from the fish to us. So you have rodent studies where you, by feeding rodents um, dairy fat, usually you can get higher omega-3 levels than if you feed them, say, you know, rice, uh, sorry, um, say oil, which has got some omega-3 in it or canola oil or things like that. So you find that you know, dairy or having dairy in the diet is um, optimal for putting omega-3 into the bloodstream, even though the dairy is low in omega-3 itself. The type of saturated fats in dairy have a sparing effect on omega-3. So they um and the omega-6 has the opposite effect. Um, and there's four studies in humans where there are two studies um, from France where they're In a monastery setting they are feeding two different types of diet and one has um one has butter and canola oil and the other one has something like corn and canola oil and finding that you get much higher omega-3 levels when you're feeding the, the butter along with the um along with the canola oil and that was mainly for um dha in that study now Interestingly, they found they didn't get the same effect when they artificially boosted the saturated fat content of the butter by adding crystallized maristic acid to it. So, kind of, um, I'm not sure if that would apply if you were just eating more butter. You know, if they just increased, I'd like to see one where they they just had more butter and, and didn't try and do it that way. But you're, you're getting these um, good increases, and then there's another one. So, there's two of these, two two studies like that. There's one where um, they're um, feeding infants on a dairy fat and plant fat mix versus a plant fat mix, and they're finding that the dairy fat and plant fat mix gets a, a DHA level comparable to breast milk or comparable to a DHA supplemented diet. Again, that's much better than that. the seed oil diet. And then there's an um, experiment from Australia where they um, gave people fish oil. This is a this is quite an important one because we really want to know, you know, what is the fate of fish oil when you tell people to take it. And the gay people fish oil on the one hand with an omega-6 diet, and um, on the other hand, with a um, a diet of a bit of extra butter and a bit of extra chocolate. And they for, for the saturated fat. And they found a doubled level of EPA in the cholesterol acids and and higher EPA in red blood cells. And this is A very significant increase in epa and i you know an increase in the omega-3 index which is a very good marker of health and predictor of cardiovascular disease coronary calcium and 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 things like that and um and in that case also there was a rise in ldl cholesterol so the ldl cholesterol went up because of the saturated fat but that effect put more epa onto onto it now The only nutrient, as far as I know, that is approved as a drug by the FDA is the vaskepa, which is an EPA um, ester, I think. Something that puts EPA into your bloodstream, gets it past the normal thing where it's broken down by the liver and actually gets it into your bloodstream, and it seems to have a similar effect to what feeding the fish oil with butter or with saturated fat would have had. So so we've only got these four studies in humans. the mechanism does seem to be conserved all the way from the fish. And if you have you know butter with your fish, you're getting more fish oil out of it in your blood. You're getting more of the fish oil appearing in your blood where you want it to be and where it is associated with lower cardiovascular disease. Now, of course, if you only do your nutritional epidemiology comparisons using... Um, uh, substitution, you know, we replace this with that, you know, in the, in our model, not not in real life, but in our model, we replace this with that. You're never going to see these combined effects of foods that um, you can see in an experiment. You know, when you say what happens if we combine butter and fish oil, well, combining butter and fish oil looks like a good idea. And um, so, so I think now we can start to explain what went wrong with the whole seed oil theory. Um
1: by looking at the um you know the the face of a three in the body, fascinating stuff, and uh good to know that uh i've got a a good nu- nutritional reason beyond just the amazing flavor of having butter with my mackerel yeah, and um, so I really appreciate you taking the time today and um maybe you could tell people where they Sorry. can find you online oh yes,
2: you can find me online at um um I guess on Twitter, puddleg, P-U-D-D-L-E-G, and um, you can also find me, um, I work for with Grant Schofield for a business called Pre-Cure, and we have online courses where we're um, training health coaches, but also just giving people, um, if, if somebody just wants a background in um, nutrition or the use of the ketogenic diet or, or, or these kind of areas, there are also courses that are sort of matched to those. Um, those things and that's Precure, capital P-R-E, capital K-U-R-E and um, we also do run free courses from time to time so people can try various sort of lifestyle approaches. Um, So
1: yeah, check that out. Brilliant, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, Fantastic, well uh, take care and stay safe amidst all the the COVID stuff and um, I really appreciate you coming on again. Yeah, thank you Ali, thank you very much, nice speaking to you.
0: Thanks for listening everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk Thanks and see you next time.